Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 410 is recorded live June 28th, 2019. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where I am enjoying these long, sunny days. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Well, I'm doing pretty good so far. Uh, not too much rain. We did have that good storm yesterday, but the air wiggles are starting to come into the house. That must mean there's a lot of water out there. Yeah, they're trying to evacuate and get away from the moisture. Well, I'd like to thank uh, everybody who showed up in the chat room. We have our normal diehards, Eric and Derek, are in there, and we'll have some more as the show goes on. Normally, we'll we'll sneak on in. Uh, uh, one thing I have accomplished is I have gotten all the episodes out and edited. Uh, and I think that's a first for a long time. Yeah, so we're this one that we're recording is actually being recorded after the previous one has been posted published. So. Uh, I, thanks for everybody being patient, but we finally got caught up on that. And then I've got a few really old back episodes that I need to edit, and hopefully I can get those. Uh, they take some additional effort. So hate to make too many promises, but we'll try and get those knocked out as well. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article we have is a scuba diver rescued after almost eight hours lost off the Pensacola Pass. Just before the sunset on Sunday on Pensacola Pass, a charter boat rescued Pensacola scuba diver who'd been lost for nearly eight hours. I never intended anything ever happen in my life. Mike Osborne told the New Journal on Tuesday, a network system engineer for the Pensacola Police Department, Osborne picked up scuba diving back in November as a way to enjoy his free time. Sunday marked Osborne's 35th dive. This time, along with the roughest waters, he was descended in yet. Osborne and a group of friends piled into the boat and began their dive around noon on Sunday, about 16 miles offshore in Pensacola Pass. While gearing up, Osborne's elbow hit the inflator hose, letting air into his buoyancy compensator a control device that is worn to maintain neutral buoyancy. Not thinking anything of it, he descended into the water, but quickly realized the excess air was keeping him from going any farther. Osborne vented the buoyancy compensator, descended into the murky waters once more. Due to his equipment malfunction and lack of underwater visibility, Osborne couldn't find his dive buddy. Swimming deeper, Osborne reached a flat layer of sand instead of the pyramid-shaped surface the divers initially depend, descend upon. After 10 minutes of unsuccessful searching, Osborne went up for a three-minute safety stop, finding himself about 150 yards away from the boat and out of sight, he said. I inflated my safety buoy, waved my arms, blew my whistle. They didn't see it, and they didn't hear it. Another five to ten minutes later, he'd officially lost sight of the dive boat. Osborne's crew began to search pattern, and after about an hour, notified the U.S. Coast Guard. A little while later, dive charter volunteers joined the mission. 
His time dragged on, helicopters and boats passed by, none of them noticing his calls for help. Lost in the water, Osborne maneuvered his gear to keep him alive and afloat. Using a dive watch and a safety buoy, he lined up with the edge of the clouds and kicked towards the direction of shore. A lot of interesting things you don't think about when you dive regularly come into play. Osborne's neon green safety buoy was one of them, chosen for his high visibility color. The buoy failed Osborne on Sunday because of the way the water and sun fell on it caused it to appear white, blending in the white caps and making it harder to see. Each time Osborne had the slightest inkling of a boat passing, he blew his whistle and signaled in that direction. I just hoped to God they would hear me, he said. Uncertain of his fate, what kept Osborne kicking was he's never losing hope, repeating to himself there's going to be something else each time a boat or helicopter passed him by. His life flashing before him, Osborne thought he would do as made it out of life as tell his parents he loves them. I don't do that enough, and you have to tell people you care about in your life that you love them, he said. Nearly eight hours later, and after nine miles of drifting, a charter boat came to his rescue at about 7.30 p.m. Captain Andy Ross and a few divers set out about 6 p.m. on Sunday in response to a dress call about the missing diver. Observing the current's east direction, Ross calculated speed to one and a half miles per hour multiplied by the amount of time the diver had been missing. Slowing down around the seven-mile marker, Ross and his crew officially noticed a white stick hanging out of the water, Osborne's safety buoy. It's like finding a needle in the haystack, Ross said. At that moment, Osborne started kicking, gave up, gave up all his effort for the first time of the day, and he let someone else take care of him. I owe them everything. They saved my life, he said. Happy, tired, and thirsty, Osborne cracked open along the way to Gatorade while the uh, knee-high dive charter boat took him to shore, where he reunited with his relieved and overjoyed family. Despite the risks Sunday brought, Osborne plans to continue his favorite hobby, though now with a higher quality gear and a flashlight always in tow. Looking back in his harrowing weekend, Osborne emphasizes the seriousness of safety. It's something that seems just a little bit off to speak of. Life-threatening situations are real. They could happen to anyone. I shouldn't be alive. I should be dead. So th- this this one almost uh, rings of some of those safety stories we've talked about. Yeah, I've never seen a neon green. I've always seen red or very orange-orange. I did see SAS Dive Shop had a green one. Uh, it's kind of like a, like a, it's like green. It's like a neon green. It's in the kind of the lime colors. Well, I do and know it, that and my mirror and my strobe light, you know, strobe would have made a difference too, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. I wouldn't have thought that that green would have faded away, but there's a while there where they were like doing school buses in green because they said it had better visibility. But in this particular case, everybody is identifying it as white when they finally did see it. Uh, I think if I were really diving that kind of uh, 15 miles offshore, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. I would have one of those uh, beacons with me, yep. emergency beacons. I saw them again down at Wolf's for less than 300 That is fantastic insurance. And that's yeah. exactly what I'd have. And the thing that uh, there's, this, I mean, of course, we're backseat jockeying on this, but uh, and some of this may just be the author. He t- they talked about equipment malfunction, but it sounded a little more like user error than equipment malfunction, didn't it? Well, or yeah. Well, how do you get if I, I don't know how you use your elbow and make your your uh, inflator <laughs> valve? You know, 
I can't use my elbow to make my inflator valve go. Well, could it? I wonder if he has one of those inflators, like I think that you do, where you you can pull on the uh, the hose and it will vent. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he had that, like he bumped it, maybe not necessarily with his elbow, but you know he he pulled on it and it it probably burps out pretty quick. I was just that, curious why he didn't go down the anchor line. Is it a, yeah, I would have thought you'd go down the anchor line and then you'd go with somebody. Well, I mean, so he, when it's lousy, you know, we've got a trailing line out the back. We've got a line from the boat mm-hmm. to the front of the boat. And that way you can get in, haul yourself over and then go down the line. So I, I'm not sure what happened and how they got in the water there from an anchored boat. Yeah, and I wonder how deep it is out there. Yeah, because I'm trying to figure out what the uh, well, it's got to be within recreational depths because he he made it to the bottom, and I'm thinking at 35 dives. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm I'm thinking it probably I'm picturing maybe 60 feet at the deepest, Um, and it sounds like this is a spot he had dove on before. Yeah. Instead, the pyramid-shaped surface, is it maybe that there's a mooring that the boat ties I, to? Not a clue. Yeah. So I'm almost wondering if maybe they kind of go down it, but, you know, it's like an old barnacled-up chain on the mooring, and he didn't want to, gra- you know, they don't grab it, so you go down with it. But with all the distraction of uh, the, uh, you know, having the bad buoyancy, uh, he may have drifted a little bit down current mm-hmm. and 10 minutes. You know, if, yeah, that's, that's tough. I mean, he didn't have a reel because the other thing, if you're going to do a search would be to somehow, you know, have an extra weight that you drop in the bottom and then you tie off to that and you do kind of a search pattern thinking that maybe you're just, you know, a hundred feet or so off the, uh, the mooring or anchor. Well, he was lucky. Yeah. But I bet he gets one of those little emergency call button things. Uh, yeah. Emergency he, beacons. He, he, yeah. He's going to do something. But uh, kudos for the dive community down there. Sounds like that other boat came out when it didn't necessarily, I mean, it wasn't their diver. Uh, so a lot of people looking for him. And the helicopters, too. Yeah. Yeah, they have helicopters out there for a while. Yeah, they've had those personal or personnel locator beacons for divers. They've had those since mid two thousands. Pretty decent. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they 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 keep getting less and less expensive. Yeah, and yes. I still I still have not bought one. Well, again, we're not going sixteen miles offshore. No. And when we go offshore in the big lake, when we start going out past sight of land. Well, one, I don't know of any place that you're off site of land that you're not hundreds of feet, though. No. I mean, the, the probably Ann Arbor is the is the wreck. Ann Arbor, maybe Ironsides are the two that at our level uh, diving. Uh, some people, I mean, if you're going out to some of those tech wrecks out there, you're, you're now you're getting into not quite this distance but you know more than just two or three miles well he was what 16 miles from shore which one 
He was 16 miles from shore. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, when you, yeah, when, when you're out there on the Atlantic, sometimes it just seems like they go way out there. And, and that was my point. If I were going that far out, I would be, I would hope I would be a little more prepared for that aspect. But again, it's just like most of the items we talk about. You do not anticipate something that simple going wrong and then mm-hmm. putting you in jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah, and this is a case of where a couple different things didn't go quite right for them. And then here we have a firm that's pitching solutions uh, to deter sharks. Lauren, our Cape Towns and the National Seashore are waiting for the Woods Hole Group consultant to finish its shark mitigation study in September, which will provide the pros and cons related to a wide variety of options. But in the meanwhile, the Wellfleet-based Cape Cod Ocean Community Citizens Group continues to hold events showcasing various shark deterrence detections and alert technologies. The latest was held at Hog Island Brewery in Orleans on June 12th, where all good meetings should be held in a brewery. Uh, the five technology vendors pitch their products, including Ocean Guardian, Shark Bands, Shark It, Omna, and ATI. Ocean Guardian, which uses Shark Shield technology, makes deterrent products like the Freedom Plus Surf, which is placed on a surfboard, and other products can be placed on boats, scuba, and dive gear. Uh, shark Banks displayed its newest product, Shark Banks 2 which is a wristband that uses magnetic technology to deter sharks from coming close to swimmers. Shark banks overwhelm sharks' electroreceptors, causing a highly unpleasant sensation that turns sharks away. This according to the company. It is said that deterrence does not harm the sharks or other sea creatures. Sharkit, which is run by a couple of Marston Mills, is a striped adhesive pattern that can be applied to the bottom of boats, boards, Floats, canoes, and kayaks is meant to confuse sharks' visual senses. Sharks only have one type of photoreceptor in their retinas, which essentially means they only see black and white. Applying a simple stripe pattern at the bottom of your watercraft interrupts and confuses shark visual senses and differentiates you from their usual prey. Omna Marine Tourniquet is a, made with metal materials, is FDA registered and designed to use the water after someone is bitten. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that, but wouldn't that just be a line? A I don't know. A, a lot of them. Term. A lot of the newer ones. Um, it's like if you wear it on your arm or your leg, not tight. And if you got hit, uh-huh. you can do it with one hand and tighten it. Uh-huh. So if you're by yourself, you could apply a tourniquet. If, you, if you're injured, when your arms are down, how, how do you get enough, you know, to put something on and tighten it down, it's hard to do. So it might be well, something. And then you're in the, that. and you're in the water. And uh, my first aid training, I think only the very first time I took first aid, they even talked about tourniquets. And beyond that, they pretty much have kind of poo pooed it. Really? Uh, yeah, because they uh, there's something about that they're rarely effective. That's it. I, I disagree uh, with that. Generally, well, I, I think it's a, it's a, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's a, it's part of it is a judgment call. Uh, if you're, if tackle. it's something where you're going to, you're going to bleed out, then yes, a, a tourniquet is certainly needed. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just going back looking at the military aspect, total loss of a limb or something like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you've if you've lost a limb, then uh, certainly a tourniquet makes sense. Uh, then another one is acoustic. Uh, Acoustic Technologies Incorporated, ATI systems based in Boston's emergency notification system for beaches, basically loudspeakers attached to a pole that sits in a parking lot on the beach and can alert swimmers to get out of the water when a shark is too near. Each speaker is 400 watts of the sound that can travel a mile in the ocean and, and to each side of the beach, according to the sales manager, Kathy Parker. Parker said the system starts a loud tone and an automated voice specialing message instructs people to evacuate the water. She said the system has no environmental impact to the beach or the ocean, which would be managed by either lifeguard or the town officials on beach, even though the ocean goers will usually evacuate their bowels. Um, I added that part if you had any. Uh, the system with three speakers would cost a little bit more than $50,000. So I imagine it sounds like just screaming and get out of the water. I have no idea why that would cost $50,000. Because you can get it. I mean, somebody's got a probably cabling. Oh, if you think that one's good, here's, uh, they got some other ones down here. Uh, yeah, and then said, uh, let's see. Uh, we'll just skip down. It says, town administrator said this week that antenna is up the coast beach for the fire department. Radio repeaters providing better communication than two Ocean beaches. This is going to be fully operational by July 1st. Bebe said the open Cape proposal to bring reliable connectivity cell phones and other devices like shark detection projects to remote beaches on the outer Cape will not be happening this year. The technology nonprofit that owns and operates a fiber link network across the region sent the proposal to several towns, the Cape Cod National Seashore and other stakeholders, including Cape delegation listing 10 beaches where it provide service at a cost of one and a half million dollars. He said that the town, or if she seashore did pursue the project, taste it take at least two years of permitting before it went forward. Yeah, it makes that speaker system look pretty cheap now, doesn't it? That must be a pretty deserted area if you don't have good conductivity or connectivity out there. Yeah, I wonder if they have cell phone out there. Well, no, that's not. what they're saying. Being reliable connectivity to cell phones and other devices. So I don't know why they wouldn't put up just cell towers or why companies don't already have the cell towers because everybody's got a cell phone. It must just be far enough out and too expensive. I mean, at a million and a half just for the fiber optics. But again, why do you need fiber optics? I I think it's because nobody's doing anything other than fiber optics is why you need fiber optics. Actually, the the cost for the cable, the fiber optic cable, is about the same as regular wire now. I suppose what I'm saying is, if I have a cell phone, why do I need a fiber optic cable? Well, the the tower you're talking to needs the needs the fiber optic cable, or or sometimes they'll do backhauls. Some Aren't they repeaters? Are, They're just. Uh, yeah, they'll, I'm, they'll I'm, I'm way, like I'm that. way beyond that then, because I just remember you establish towers at certain frequencies, and then I can communicate from tower to tower without a cable between. Yeah, yeah, they 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 call those backhauls. Uh, I'm I'm sure it's a matter of they just don't want something to get by; they want something that they can make money on. 
meaning the companies who are pitching us. Or to pay for their efforts. Yeah. I'm curious what frequency they use on some of that equipment. The photoreceptor uh, aspect sounds interesting for the for the eyeball, but uh, I like the one about the electronic interference with their their sensory. Yeah, if, if that works, that seems like that'd be nice. And then I I'm always a believer that sharks in general, until they get a good taste of you, uh, are are not wanting are not going after humans. So if you have something on the board. That they just go, you know, I don't know what that is, but that's not food. Then that could also help. Yeah, I I think uh, when you're a diver laying flat on a dark object flailing your arms, there's a lot of things you could look like. Yeah. Food. (laughs) Yeah. Or, you know, what you could do is just put a Chuck Norris photo on the bottom of whatever you've got with you, and that will scare them away. Or you just have a portable shark cage that's got DPV motors on it, and you cruise around on that like they do when they're harvesting goby gooby ducks and stuff up there and ah, off the California yeah. coast. Yeah, I now this article just talked about uh, yeah the, they're trying to get some sort of proposals in for for uh, preventing the sharks. But have they been having shark attacks? Is this a a problem in this area? Well, did you see that picture? It looks like they're having some issues. The the on the boardwalk there where it says warning and it's got a picture of a shark? Yeah. Well, if they can take his picture, can't they just shoo him away? <laughs> I mean, if I it's like when I was in California years ago, uh, Half Moon Bay, we dive out there in the kelp and stuff. Uh a year or so later, Sharks came in there and started eating the seals, and you didn't want to dive there anymore. So I wouldn't dive in a yeah. place that I know had sharks that were in the neighborhood eating seals. Would you? No, because they're associating that area with dinner. Yeah. And I'd prefer not to be dinner for for a while. Absolutely. Interesting warning sign, though. Those are graphic and vivid. Yeah, they can't say you didn't tell me. Now they they don't show on the other side the uh, the uh, gift stand and snack shop where they have the you know the fin hats that you put on when you're swimming in the water. <laughs> yeah, but they frown upon that. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, or the, or the underwater bu- or shark the, drone snack bu- Yeah, or the snack buckets of chum. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a fun game you can play. Nothing like dying a dead fish to your fin, to your uh, friend's swimsuit. Well, just drag that bag behind you. It's on the leash. Just haul it behind <laughs> you about four feet. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember the old stuff we had with the life vest and stuff. That if you were bailed out over the water, uh, you had shark repellent. I don't remember what was in that. I and if, the, if it was a static, you know, you could get a big pool around you, but, the, you know, if it was choppy waters, it would dissipate that pretty quick. Yeah, it was probably just something. So, you know, it, it could be sugar. I mean, it's just, it, it's kind of like boiling water, uh, you know, to help with a pregnancy. You know, it's just something to, to occupy your time. I mean, did it actually work? 
Well, you know, they, hey, the military bought it. It must work, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nobody would try to con the government. Not at all. Vasibo. Ah, forget yeah. it. You got the shark repellent. Yeah, you're, you're fine. I don't know. Get in the lifeboat. You're okay. D.C. area scuba divers dig out their old snorkels and fins to combat a coral eater. Uh, a dive shop at 18th and South Streets Northwest called Blue Planet Scuba is becoming a mustering point for international effort to combat coral-eating monsters. They're nasty little bugger, Bruce Butterworth said of the Crown of Thorn Starfish, or COT. The COT's scientific name, which I won't pronounce, is not a cute little starfish. It's more H.R. Giggy than Walt Disney. H.R. Geiger. Geiger? Than Walt Disney. And I don't know who that is, do you? No, I don't. I mean, that's pretty bad. I don't get the reference. Uh, Think of the blob with multiple tentacles, said Butterworth, a transportation security consultant who lives in Springfield, Virginia. Multi-limbing covered with venomous spines. A cot can grow as big around as a trash can lid. Armies of them munch their way through coral. Butterworth 60 has been venturing underwater since the 80s, first snorkeling and then certified as scuba diver. At that time, he's witnessed a slow decline of the world's coral reefs. Global warming plus other stresses and damage from people has been creating problems, he said, two years ago in a trip to the Grand Caymans in the Caribbean. He learned that a leading coral expert happened to be nearby. That was Phil Dustin, professor of the College of Charleston. Butterworth asked Dustin where he could see coral and what he could do to help save it. Dustin pointed him towards a remote Indonesian archipelago called Raja Amput in a patch of ocean called the Coral Triangle. Dive there, Dustin said, to see thousands of different types of coral along with many creatures that depend on the reef survival. Dustin said something else, too. If you really want to help, bring some weaponry to fight back against these dreaded COT. The explosion of TOCs was first noted in Australian environmental activist Norm Van Hoff. The boom is a consequence of runoff from human waste that disposed, deposited in shallow septic pits and untreated sewage discharge from boats. This nitrogen-rich stew causes spike in phytoplankton, which COT larvae eat. More COT survive to adulthood, where they turn to coral for their meal. Hardcore divers come from around the world to light in Raja Ampit's amazing coral. Tourism has enabled locals to switch from destructive practices such as shark finning for shark fin soup and fish bombing, where explosives are dropped over the sides of boats. The COT threaten that tourism. Dustin came up with a simple countermeasure, injecting adult crown of thorn starfish with 10% vinegar solution kills it. Imagine something that's needle-tipped, caulking gun connected to a bladder full of vinegar solution. When the COT is dead, the fish eat it. The starships aren't starships. <laughs> starfish aren't that deep from 5 to 15 feet below the surface, but to reach them easily requires a mast, snorkel, and fins. These things are residents of Raja Ampits don't have. Oh, the residents. Okay. So the locals don't have all this gear. So Butterworth set out collecting them so locals could fight the scourge themselves. We'd say we'd be happy to take up a, a drive. Most divers are aware enough to want to lend a hand. The Washington area is blessed with divers who upgrade their gear regularly. Blue Planet became a place to drop off the fins and masts that were gathering dust. Before long, the shop had 45 sets of masts. Fins and snorkels, including 27 snorkels, donated for the effort. 
In March, Butterworth flew to Indonesia with his frequent dive partner, Jan Finn, to deliver five bags worth of gear collected with the help of Blue Planet and its customers. Contributions also came from the King's Cormorant Master Swimmers Club in London, Florida's Force East Scuba Center and Daventry Community Association, where Bruce lives with his wife, Chris. Kathy Pacific and Garada Indonesia Airlines waived the baggage fees. The big non-government organizations and government programs are not going to fix this issue. They move through slow and like politics, ecology is a local sport. People from developed nations pitching in to help locals here is pretty high form of participation. It's important that people know that there are those around the world who care about their reefs. So that's kind of interesting. So they're, they're gearing up the locals to, to help combat this. I put a couple of the mm-hmm. items on the site. That's Hans Geiger, or it's either G-I-G-E-R, Geiger maybe. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a Swiss painter known for airbrush images of humans and machines linked together in a biomechanical relationship. And he also did uh, work on the film The Alien. So that's what he was referencing to when oh. they said monster. And then that okay. crown of thorns, I put a little note there plus a picture. It's a very pretty looking uh, starfish, but a lot more legs than I'm used to seeing. And the the colors are awesome. You see what I posted or not? You look at look at. Let me see. Oh, you put that. That's in general. Okay. But I had to figure out who that yeah. guy was when they were talking aliens. Yeah, now that you say that, but it's so far out of context in this. And it's not, you know, Disney's enough mainstream I'd come up with it. Yeah. But uh, Geiger, yeah. And and I when when you said, you know, aliens, I, I, I'm aware of his work. It, that's kind of a style that he had. Yeah, I think so when they, they said... For, he, he, when they it said was, monsters, I think that's what the relationship was referencing, uh, aliens, monsters. Yeah. And they're talking about cute little starfish. And probably, you know, Walt Disney is more of the under the sea as opposed to, uh, you know, the aerial. Okay. Well, there you go. I guess I'm just not uh, up to the standards of the Washington Post for readers. They would fail me. Now, how about this? Not much of a diving opportunity at the moment, but scientists map huge undersea freshwater aquifer off the U.S. Northeast. A new study of the subfloor off the U.S. Northeast Coast scientists have made a surprising discovery. A gigantic aquifer of relatively fresh water trapped in porous sediment lying below the salty ocean. It appears the largest formation yet found in the world. The aquifer stretches from the shore at least from Massachusetts to New Jersey, extending more or less continuously out about 50 miles to the edge of the continental shelf. It's found on the surface. If found on the surface, it would create a lake covering some 15,000 square miles. The study suggests such an aquifer probably lie off many other coasts worldwide and could provide desperately needed water for arid regions that are now in danger of running out. Researchers employed innovative measurement of electromagnetic magnetic waves to map the water, which remained invisible to other technologies. We knew there was fresh water down there in isolated places, but we did not know the extent or the geometry. It could turn out to be an important resource for other parts of the world. The study appears this week in the Journal of Scientific Reports. 
The first in the aquifer came in the 70s when companies drilled offshore for oil, but sometimes instead hit fresh water. Drill holes are just pinpricks in the seafloor, and scientists debated whether the water deposits were isolated pockets or something bigger. Starting about 20 years ago, study co-author Carrie Kay, now of Lamont, daughtery geophysicist, helped oil companies develop techniques using electromagnetic imaging of the subsea floor to look for oil. More recently, Kay decided to see if some form of the technology could also be used to find freshwater deposits. In 2015, he and Rob Evans of Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute spent 10 days on a research vessel making measurements off the southern New Jersey with the Massachusetts Island and Martha's Vineyard, where they scattered drill holes that hit freshwater-rich sediments. They dropped receivers in the seafloor to measure electromagnetic fields below and the degree which natural disruptions such as solar wind and lightning strikes resonated through them. The apparatus towed behind the ship also emitted artificial electromagnetic pulses and recorded the same type of reaction from the subsea floor. Both methods work in simple ways. Salt water is better conductor of electromagnetic waves than fresh water, so fresh water stood out as a band of low conductance. And then they go on and on and on. Um, and at some part, they're thinking that this may be left over from uh, the uh, the Ice Age, that so much was covered in ice that as it melted, uh, it forced its way into the ground. While you were doing that, I looked it up a little bit. This is not a new item, nor is it new that people knew about this. The issue that comes about now is, so let's say you find the water and it's fresh water. Who owns it? Do you mean who owns it? The same Yeah, who owns who water? Own, same and, people who uh, own the salt water. It came about because there is that law, like when you explore, you know, you, you do oil. And if you're in a territorial uh-huh. waters of a country, you obviously share the proceeds and the cost. But with water, they're determining that's a, it's different than oil because you have to have water. And they were talking about big issue now is who owns the water and how do you determine that? And I didn't even know it, but let's see what it is here. Uh, UN Convention of the Law of the Sea has guidelines on that type of uh, issue. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's a little more common than we thought. First, I've really heard about it, uh, but they're, they're saying it's really vital because if you go to an area that Let's even say Australia, for example. Take a look how big that con- the continent is, and every, all the um, population is basically around where they can have access to the water, the ocean, so they can distill it, so they can have something to drink. Well, if you've got aquifers and then you can drill into that and get either brackish or, or good water, that would be a heck of a boom. also be cheaper than trying to desolve. There's some really good articles on that. And again, the big question, is who determines who owns it, and then what is the process of the government for allowing to mine it or to drill and it? Yeah, I, th- those are all answers beyond what I'm my expertise. But I just thought it was interesting just how much water there is now around Australia. Would they in the last ice age were they did they have ice down there? I don't know enough about geology or. Or their history to know because we, I think we had 
in North America went almost down to well, what probably southern Indiana or farther. I really yeah for for the ice age per se. I mean, I never realized that Mount Everest, the tallest mountain range we have, was actually the bottom mm-hmm. of the sea at one time. Yeah, yeah, because that's the ocean plates right. over the. And- you know, because you had what uh, what they what they call that Pangea, where it was all one big, giant mass, and then it all split apart and yep, yep. went around, and then they eventually ran into each other. So, over millions were, of years, then right. And I read something the other day that was talking about the Great Flood. Well, the Great Flood was caused by a meteorite that had hit the uh, ice areas, and obviously melted a lot of stuff. It raised the sea level by 400 feet, and that's where, when you look at the biblical flood of the world, that's where that came from. And that's why so many people know about it is because if the if the ocean rises 400 feet, you're going to notice it. Yeah, that's uh, that's something you remember. Well, especially if you're in an area that's got low elevation. So yeah, I mean, we've been here. Depending on who you talk to. 100,000 years is, you know, Cro-Magnum and all this stuff. We can't tell what we did 10 years ago or 100 years ago, and now we're trying to figure out something that's happened 15,000. Yeah. So, yeah, I believe global warming to some extent, but anyway, I thought it was interesting. It's, It's hard to think that you can actually have water, potable water, trapped under the ocean. Yeah. Now, they did say that it still uh, would need some desalination. They said that uh, fresh water usually contains less than one part per thousand salt. Uh, But by the time the aquifer reaches its outer edge, it's about 15 parts per thousand, where normal seawater is about 35 parts per thousand. But then again, if you're drilling down, you're going to go past that brackish aspect, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, you'd get down to the uh, probably the the lower amounts, but even so, now uh, because you know, really desalination is is all about an energy trade off. So the less uh, uh, I would think that the less salt that was in there, the easier it is to push the uh, through the membranes. Absolutely, yeah. They use that osmosis, which is a lot better than boiling water, taking the condensed steam. And then, which is the easy way to do it. I mean, if you're on an island, you got to do something. You can make water. Yeah, and then then the desalination, it's also those membranes will wear out. So the the more impurities you have to push through them, the the quicker you have to do replacement of those membranes. Interesting, though. Yeah. But you would think that the the companies that drill for oil and gas, that's the people who are going to be able to take advantage of that. Oh, they've got the technology. Yeah. Um, and and you know that they've logged that data where it's at, and they'll look at it. So when uh, oil, when it gets to the point where oil isn't in as much demand as it is currently, then, you know, hey, how about some water I'll sell you? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Patty acquires the Bonner's, if I'm saying it right, Dive Media Group. The Professional Association of Dive Instructors announced this week that it now owns Bonner's Corporation Network of Dive Media Brands 
including Scuba Diving Magazine, scubadiving.com, Sports Diver Magazine, sportsdiver.com, and Skin Diver Magazine. As part of the organization's Paddy Club, dive members will receive access to a multimedia platform, including Scuba Diving Magazine's as popular Scuba Lab Gear Guide and the World's Best Special Issues. The, ven- the benefit is part of a larger package that offers online dive logging, community connections, and discounts for Paddy e-learning courses, Paddy travel tips, and branded merchandise. Paddy says its retail resort and professional members will all benefit from the synergy, as will other industry stakeholders. According to Drew Richardson, president and CEO of Paddy Worldwide, our investment in this premier dive media group is a natural progression in Paddy's mission to educate and inspire our dive community. Our relationship with the Bonaire Corporation dates back to 1999, and then that time we developed unique bond built on trust, integrity, and empowerment of divers to be the ambassadors for our blue planet. We're thrilled to welcome the media group into the Patty family and amplify exposure for engaging content dedicated to diving. And then there's a bunch of other stuff. It's a press release. Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't read any of those magazines in a while, but I know that they're pretty uh, popular dive magazines. And you do notice that Undercurrent is not there. No, un- Undercurrent's uh, an independent one. That one. Absolutely. Uh, and I don't think that one's a, a print. I think that's uh, digital only, isn't it? It is now. Yeah. Was it print at one point in time? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, being in the printing industry, I would like to see more print, but I certainly understand. And the, and the projects I work on now are all digital, which is really yeah. where this, this growth is. Well, I've seen Scuba Diving Magazine, but I'm, I don't do the scubadiving.com. I don't do the Sport Diver. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't really do the magazines anymore. Well, the tough thing that all these have done is uh, they're glitzy, polished, and paid for. And that's what it comes. you got to buy the magazine. Uh, it's so highly uh, produced. And then it just screams native advertising. So you never know how much should somebody pay for that rating. And as much as they claim, oh, well, that's a separate group who does the, the dive gear, it's, you, you can't really believe it. So that's why I, I discount a lot of that stuff. I, I'm, I usually, you, you do your 20 different ways to figure out whether something's good as opposed to going and reading those articles. Yeah, maybe they can prove me wrong. Yeah. And this one's in our own backyard here. Are you talking about the lobster one yet? Are you going to skip that one or what? No, no, let's let's go ahead and do that one. Uh, yeah, I got that uh, one I, here. I don't ha- it said, um, get ready for Lauderdale-by-the-Sea Bug Fest, lobster mini-season. And the way they say it is, one of the area's most anticipated annual events, Lauderdale-by-the-Sea, or Bug Fest-by-the-Sea, kicks off lobster hunting mini-season with multiple fun events. There are two Florida lobster hunting seasons, when divers can legally catch lobster. The two-day mini-season and the eighth-month regular lobster season. The mini-lobster season is always the least consecutive Wednesday and Thursday in July. Lauderdale-by-the-Sea kicks off the mini-season with fun events, a concert, and workshops. Participating divers can win up to $15,000 in cash, 
dive gear prizes and trips. Unlike the Keys, the divers during the lobster mini-season in Lauderdale by the sea can also bag up to 12 bug lobsters per day. Guests can also night dive for lobsters, which is prohibited in the Keys. Bugface, uh, Bugfest is sponsored by Reef Safe, which is a brand of sunscreen that won't harm the uh, reef systems. Uh, this year's event is Tuesday, July 23rd, meaning we still have time to go, through uh, Saturday the 27th, and features a free concert on the 27th to benefit Dive Heart, a nonprofit that teaches people with disab- uh, disabilities how to scuba dive. It also says that the event also helps promote Lauderdale by the Sea as an awesome South Florida vacation destination. The Beachside City has fabulous beachfront hotels on wide beaches at low summer rates, several great restaurants, fun public plazas with kid games and quaint shops, all a short walk for accommodations. Online registration is June 1st. Contest fee is $20. Divers receive a Bugfest goodie bag and T-shirt. And it says, let's see, the activities included this year is free bug hunting seminar with uh, Chiefy at Plunge Hotel, free lobster mini season kickoff party at the uh, Plunge's Beachfront Backflip Bar. And there you get to meet the scuba cowboy, scuba radio host Greg Holt. And scuba, uh, scuba radio mermaids. Okay, I like the mermaid part. Yeah, I, I, I think they got you a mermaid, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, free Bugfest lobster chef competition. Free uh, Florida Reef fish ID presentation. Jarvis Hall. A mini season diver award party. And free Anglin's Pier cleanup dive with Gold Coast Scuba and Patty Project Aware. And free music concert Saturday the 27th. So it's attracted participants from neighboring cities like Pomodoro Beach, Deerfield Beach, and Fort Lauderdale, as well as all over South Florida and from even around the world. If you got questions, call yeah. Steve, gives the number, or email him at steve at ibts-florida.gov. I'd like to go to that. That'd be fun. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd love to go there, whatever. And it, it, the I didn't realize this, but other than during the uh, season, you're not allowed to do night dive. Yeah, I didn't either. But then and, again, and that I must would. be. Uh, I'm I'm thinking it must be like an anti poaching thing, that they just can't keep up with it. So the the assumption is going to be if you're diving at night, you're poaching. Well, no, I can't say that because. Well, they're gonna, everybody who's diving at night, you're going to try to arrest them? Well, that's what it sounds like. I don't know. No, it'd be hard, it'd be hard for us to do that. The only thing yeah, you can do that, is check the boats when they dock. Yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, yeah, because I can't think of any other reason why you'd, you'd have that rule, but then you'd waive it for this. I mean, you know, we've talked about lionfish and going down there and hunting those. And we've still not got our sample of lionfish to try out and see how it tastes. No. But, uh, no I, know how, I know what lobster tastes like, and I like it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I would certainly go down there for some lobster. Yeah. 
Well, if anybody wants us to join there so they can say, hey, Scoob Obsessed is there, uh, I think you and I can make arrangements to be there at least for a day. Yeah, we could. Yeah, we could head down there. And I, and I think it's appropriate that there should be, they should show movies on the beach like Alien and Aliens. Shark. Would be good. One, two, three, yeah. four. Jaws. Yeah. Yeah, op- open water. You know, all, all, the, all the classics. Yeah, Godzilla comes from the world. Yeah, and, and you're yeah, or or even Pacific Rim. I think that's a that's a water movie, isn't it? So, and you can see why we're we're not part of the marketing program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't want to make the kids cry. And then we have one. This let's see where this one's from. The UK campaign to save artifacts from three hundred and fifty year old Southern Pier shipwreck. The Save the London campaign is being spearheaded by the Nautical Archaeological Society and London Shipwreck Trust to collect the artifacts which have been set near the foot of the pier for 350 years. In 1665, tragedy hit the London warship and exploded in the Thames estuary, killing 300 people. The second-rate ship is identified as Samuel Pepe's diary as part of the fleet that brought Charles II back to England in the 17th century. Although made of wood, the ship's remains are lying just off the shipping channel where the strong tides and constant turbulence are rapidly eroding it, meaning time is running out to preserve the historic artifacts before they are lost forever. Okay, I, I have to go back on this. Is Anytime they want you, somebody wants you to spend money, they got to convince you that if you don't do it right now, that it's all over with. Uh-huh. So here, so there's this vessel, but the strong tides are destroying it very rapidly. Well, it doesn't sound that rapidly to me if that vessel's been sitting there for 350 years. You're trying to oh, tell yeah. me that in two years to time that it's going to be from recoverable to not right now. Stop everything you're doing. Send me money. Uh, the Southern museum has a display of the ship in place since September last year and includes a cannon, which was plundered from the Dutch naval ship. Eon Yearsley, a leading South End historian, said South End didn't exist at the time it sunk off the coast. It'd be nice to secure as many artifacts as possible and sell much of the story of the ship for local people. Currently, the exhibition has cannons from the ship, day-to-day artifacts like drinking vessels and elements of clothing. The exhibition is really interesting. It tells the story of the ships, some of the crew, the voyage, context of time as part of Olive Cromwell's Navy. I would certainly recommend that people go with the Saxton King expedition on offer now too. fundraising campaign officially starts on July 3rd to look at the expedition of the museum and the Victoria annual visit museumcrush.org. And then they go on. You just have to click on our show notes to get all the way through that. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I know that you're fundraising, but everybody's got to make it. Like they, like they call it the call to action right now. Drop everything. Uh, grumpy old man coming through here. Um, <laughs> here hey, we, I'm the grumpy old guy. Come on. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> I couldn't, uh, I couldn't I'm, see the one that you're talking about because it kept coming up saying, Hey, you want to cookies on? And I never do that. So I found a different site for the same thing. And did your site have pictures? No. No, the, well, the, the show to cannon was the only thing I had. Uh, this one here has a... It was a beautiful-looking cannon. 
Now, this has a reconstruction of the boat of the vessel, which is quite interesting. I, and I put the uh, site I'm looking at on the uh, notes as we talk. And yeah. it's a signet pipe, tampering ring, recovered. That's a pretty awesome looking thing. Some of the items they've got, people have uh, recovered. Hmm. It says, uh, over the last two years, uh, Heritage, English Heritage had commissioned Cotswold Archaeology to cover out underwater excavation in order to find out how much archaeological material is there surviving. Uh, divers will be excavating three trenches in the bow of the wreck, exploring remains in the hole, the ore deck, where the anchor cables are, anchor cables are and the main gun deck as well as carpenter and boatswain storerooms. So it doesn't, it doesn't say how deep it is in what I'm looking at. But yeah, everybody I, I'm looking I at is wearing nice dry suits, so. Yeah. Interesting-looking wreck, though. And I couldn't get the depth either, could you? Did it say? No, I don't. They didn't say anything on the depth. Very interesting. Somebody will have to write us in and let us know. Well, uh, you know, Mal- Mallory, I think she she does diving over in that neck of the woods. Yeah. So we should we should bug her and see if maybe she knows. Yeah, but the the cannon's pretty ornate that they had. Uh huh. Yeah, the other's still loading. By by the time we finish the show, it'll have come up. And then we have a Revolutionary War shipwreck recovered or discovered, not recovered. Researchers have made a major discovery in the York River, the wreckage of the previously hidden British ship from the Revolutionary War's last major battle. After General Charles Cornwall's Wallace surrendered in 1781, some 26 ships were sunk and scuttled in the area now nationally recognized as the Yorktown shipwrecks. Only about 10 had been identified until now. The newly discovered ship had been buried by oyster shells, but last Wednesday, a researcher from... JRS Exploration found a metal object peeking out from the riverbed that turned out to be an iron cannon. Whoa! The find led the team to the wooden hull that they now believe may be the shipwright, a British transport vessel that collided with another ship then caught fire and sank. Discovery is a significant step in the JRS Exploration's new effort to survey, map, and identify the rich history of Yorktown shipwreck. JRS just confirmed the news to Bay Bulletin on Tuesday, asking... Uh, for them to share the following account of their discovery. On June 19th, 2019, so this is fresh, researchers from JRS Exploration discovered a new shipwreck within the Yorktown Shipwreck National Register District. The wreck appears to be an armed British transport ship during that uh, sunk during the siege of Yorktown in 1781. The wreck is completely buried in oyster shells, but Ball, Bill Waldrop, an, an experienced volunteer member of the research team, spotted a partially buried metal object protruding a few inches above the riverbed. Upon closer examination, the object proved to be an iron cannon, almost completely covered by oyster shells. On a subsequent dive, Joshua Daniel, another experienced member of the team, discovered a second and possibly third cannon lying nearby. He and John Broadwater, a team leader, probed the into the riverbed and located what appears to be the wooden hull of a large ship buried from one to several feet beneath the riverbed. The new find located near the wreck of HMS Charon, 
could be the shipwright, one of two British transport vessels that were anchored and reported to have collided with Charon and were set afire and sunk. The team recovered what appeared to be a piece of charred wood that needs to be further analyzed if verified to be a piece of timber that was charred by fire. This shipwreck would be part of that missing puzzle that has eluded researchers for nearly 238 years. Mapping and identifying this wreck will be difficult to the deep layers of oyster shells, strong river currents, and near-zero visibility. The shipwreck in its historic district played an important role in the siege of Yorktown, the last major American Revolutionary War. The battle ended in October 19, 1781, after Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered the British Army under his command. And it goes on. There's like about 30 paragraphs. So, uh, interesting to read, but you'll have to click onto the magazine and get the whole piece. But that this is unusual for something to be found in, in the paper so quickly. I wonder what the reason is. There must be like money involved. Hold, yeah, it seems like everybody wants to hold that information back, and it's nice to see it get out sooner than later. Now, the oyster shells, do you think those are just like natural oyster shells, or do you think there was a, you know, a, over the years people have just been shucking oysters, and that's where they dumped them? I can't tell, but if you suddenly saw something sticking out of the bottom, it can't be very deep, because obviously it must be very deep out there, meaning the layer of shells. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it was discovered by divers, so it's not protruding out of the water. But I don't yeah. picture it being extremely deep. Yeah, I'd be curious to know the depth. It wasn't referenced again, which is odd. Yeah, well, I, I know some of the, when they do uh, oyster beds, uh, they actually seed the oyster beds with shells to get them to go. So maybe that's, somebody who knows the area would have to tell us this is uh, Chesapeake Bay. And then over, let's go across the, to the east, Cyprus discover the first undisturbed Roman shipwreck. Cyprus has found its first undisturbed Roman shipwreck complete with ancient cargo off the southern coast. The Antiquities Department said Thursday, noting that discovery could illuminate regional trading history. The site is the wreck of a Roman ship loaded with transport, transport amphora, <coughs> most probably from Syria in, uh, well, let's see what that word is, Chilica, or Cilicia, C-I-L-I-C-I-A. Uh, the Antiquities, de Antiquities Department said in a statement, an amphora is a narrow-necked Roman jar designed to hold liquid products, including oil and wine. It was first. It is the first undisturbed Roman shipwreck ever found in Cyprus. The study of which is expected to shed new light on the breadth and scale of the seaborne trade between Cyprus and the rest of the Roman provinces of the Eastern Mediterranean. Drek is located off the Mediterranean island's southeast coast near the popular beach resort of uh, Protaris. It was spotted by volunteer divers from the University of Cyprus archaeological research team. The Antiquities Department has said it has secured full funding for a preliminary investigation, which should take place as soon as possible. The statement said the team is working on the documentation and protection of the site. Cypress waters have already provided rich for, rich for archaeological investigations in recent years, erect dating back to the late in the ancient Greek era, which sank off Mazotis 
in Cyprus, south coast in the middle of the 4th century BC, is thought to be one of the region's best preserved troves. In December last year, as the Antiquities Department said, archaeologists working on that wreck had gained intricate insights in the evolution of ancient boat building technology in the Mediterranean. Evidence found that shipwreck where research began in 2007 and which went down carrying jars of wine was linked to both the Greeks and the Phoenicians, the department said. I'm, I'm surprised this is the first one. seems like in that area there'd have been more of them or they just not found them. I'm curious about the word undiscovered. Well, undiscovered in the last 20 years. <laughs> I just and, pasted something in the little area again. Okay. This is uh, from the International Journal of Na- uh, Nautical Archaeology. And they're talking about it for century BC, M A Z O T O S shipwreck. And it's a preliminary assessment or report on this. And the shipwreck, southeast coast, 14 miles southwest of, and it gives actually the, 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 the location. Uh, I was trying to figure out how deep it is, but it doesn't say that either. Hmm. Yeah, mine. It's still loading for me. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, the wreck lies at a depth of 44 meters. And it says, in 2006, the shipwreck was found accidentally found by divers along the south coast of Cyprus. Uh, the site was uh, virtually undisturbed, so its archaeological importance is high and triggered for immediate protection. So they've been working on this for, uh, what, 13 years. That's a while. Yeah. So 44 meters is how far? You said 44? Yep, that's about 130 feet. Yeah, about that. Well, one and a half miles offshore. So access isn't too bad. It's uh, the main visible feature of the site is a concentration of of amphoras on a sandy, almost flat seabed. So far, they've... uh, Photographed over 500 amphoras, partially or totally visible. Uh, there's three layers of amphora can be distinguished above the sea bottom. So it sounds like there's a lot of stuff on this baby. But they didn't. And they have the most, they have the pictures complete. of both satellite of where it's at, which give you some nice reference. And then oh. it has oh my god, look at the picture. Oh, rub it in. Oh. <laughs> Well, I'm just looking at it and said, oh, my goodness. I can see why they, they said nobody's found this one before. Uh, I'm trying to save it so I can post Because if anybody had found it, you're saying. Oh, man, a, you, you, this picture that, is awesome. That would be on somebody's mantle or. Uh, no, they'd be minty, minty mantles. Wow. Yeah, the chat room saying the amphoras look amazing. Oh, did they find them too? No, I copied the link in there. Okay. Yeah, the pictures are awesome. Okay. Uh, here, mine finally came. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you wow. consider that a few few jugs of wine? Wow. Can you imagine what's under that? Well, and then think of how many photos they are, because that's a mosaic they've done there. And you can see that little jagged edge around the, the outside. So that meant they somebody had to stitch all those together. Are they... There is software that does it, but that is nice. 
I'm zooming in now. They're all tagged. Oh, very nice. Wow, no wonder it went down. That thing was loaded. How big a vessel was that? That'd have been one of those where they, they the rails had to have been about to the waterline. I don't know. They're doing some three D modeling of it too. That's quite oh, interesting. I go and look. And I love the line drawings. There's there's something yeah. artistic about when people do those those diagrams. Well, Someday. when you can start doing 3D oh. penetration radar scans, it's going to make all of that a, a lost art. Yeah. What do I got to draw it for? I can just photograph it. Well, there was, uh, I've seen somebody who, uh, you know, behold, uh, Squirrel Moment, but uh, he just released a, he's, he's designed this music machine, kind of like a Nickelodeon type of device, and I'm insulting it by calling it that. But he took the CAD model, and then he laid tracing paper over it, and then he hand-drew over it just so he could have that, uh, I would call it a uh, patent style of drawing. Mm-hmm. Because cause it's a, it, people like that style. It's art. And that's what they've done here with this uh, the site. Wow. Yeah, and yeah, I see there you put it in the chat room. Oh, oh Derek did. Yeah, that is that is amazing. Well, and they go into some good detail in there, some close-ups, and wow, beautiful. Yeah, that's it's worth if you're if you're into. Oh, well, now I see now I'm getting. Gosh, this is. Well, we could spend a week on this. Um, yeah, you could. The three D modeling there. They've kind of all put it. Are they trying to show how it was laid in the vessel? Is that what that is? Three D really sure. concentration of north to south. Well, that's just, wow. Mm. Just think of the stuff they haven't seen because it's underneath. Yeah. Because I don't think they're moving this stuff. They're just tagging, tagging it right now. Tagging in place. And Do they say how deep it is? It looks fairly deep. 44 I'm... meters. Oh, that's right. You said that. Uh, which, in that visibility of water, is terrible. Uh, wow. Yeah. Very good. Nice, nice, good job. Well, and they even discovered the discuss their methodology for how they put everything together. In conclusion, the aim of the three D modeler, the wreck created using Photo Modeler and AutoCAD, is not only productive a produced a three D representation of the surface finds prior to disturbance of the site, but also to serve as a tool for the interpretation understanding of the full volume. So it almost sounds like they are going to remove items. They just want to document it first. Right. But again, how long have they been working on it? Oh, gosh, yeah. If you've... This is a dream. This is an archaeologist's dream. I mean, they've been working on this uh, over 10 years now, just this one vessel. Yeah. Just think of the the money, money, money. Somebody came up with to fund this sort of project. Look look at all the names in the... uh, references (laughs) references <laughs> yeah if you don't publish you die yeah that's my well, i'm trying to think yeah yeah in in the grant world yeah you're uh i think they've got a name with every letter of the alphabet mm-hmm. see. look at z there's already no there's a z an x there's no x there's no u either but that's about the only ones <laughs> All the other letters are represented. 
Very nice. We could just dream of something like that. Well, how about some potentially cool scuba gear of all the well-known dive magazines? This one comes from Forbes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> underwater 360 camera for scuba diving. And we won't go through and, and list them, but uh, so th- they've a- this is something I wanted to do a couple of years ago, and I know that there are divers out there who've been playing around with it. I want to say uh, Laura James. Did I say her name right? Uh, out in Oregon and Washington area. Uh, she's been experimenting with doing some 360 uh, options, but uh, this is a stuff you can buy off the shelf, some of these 360 cameras, and that's something I've really wanted to play with. Yeah, and, and some of these aren't that expensive, but they, they point out you got to watch at what the depths are allowed to do. Uh, did you see any of these? Uh, photos or videos i'm looking at the stuff as we speak yeah and some of them come with software to you know stitch and remove stuff out but that is beautiful i've never really played around with 360 videos so i'm not exactly sure what that is is that the one where you got a picture and then you can use your cursor yes circle it around and you can see around you yeah normally when they play in uh uh, YouTube supports it and Facebook supports it. Uh, you're able to, as the video's playing, if you drag it, you can look all around. So my thought for Rex is you have one of these, these cameras and you do kind of like uh, Jim Schultz likes his, I don't know what he called it, three-minute flyover or something. Yeah. But do the same thing with a 360 camera and you're documenting the site. You're just providing a level of access. Uh, And if you did that every year, you could use it to show the change of the wreck and the condition, you know, where sand come up with or, or what's happened. And that's assuming you got visibility. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it helps here that all these are showing their best cases. Yeah. Uh, But, but this is getting into some of the entry level. You know, it's not, uh, super sophisticated or uh, super expensive is what I meant to say. Uh, and when I say reasonable, we're, we're talking under 300 It's a good article on what's coming up and what's available. Yeah. A dive bowl is interesting. The the one that you can add to every anything, the dive bubble? Well, another option I'm seeing in the wild, what looks well wild is 360 dive bubble. It's a sphere of air. Should allow you to use any 360 camera if you want. It's not cheap. It's around 200 bucks. Put your camera in it. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it now. Right, and then the guy holding the bubble. I mean, that's pretty freaking nice visibility where he's at. But I'm really oh, yeah. surprised that he has a snorkel. Yeah, well, the looking at this. You can tell this is in very warm water, and oh, he's think? shallow. <laughs> yeah, but do you think it's warm? Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks like he's wearing pajama bottoms. Yep. And uh, he, he has no shirt on, just a buoyancy compensation vest. I will say his buoyancy he, is fantastic because his knees are not touching. That That is true. Uh, There's no plume behind him. No silk. No, he. Yeah, he he got down there fine. And plus, he's holding the camera. 
I mean, that's yeah. a that's a good distraction as well. But look at that bottom. That just looks like aquarium gravel, doesn't it? Yeah, doesn't it though? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, beautiful. So the, they have all sorts of them. So that's it's worth looking up. And uh, all these camera companies must be doing some sort of promotion because I found three articles all just this week talking about 360 cameras. Wow. So they come in waves. Somebody's promoting something. Well, that does it for Scuba News. Hopefully you're enjoying the program. And if so, uh, and you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. We're on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed. Um, And we certainly could use your support if you're enjoying the show. Uh, a couple of different ways you could do that. One is visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over the Patreon link, and $3 or more will get early access to show notes. Helps us do things like improve some of the audio and gear and pay for hosting. And if you can't do that, we understand. Five-star reviews are also welcome. That helps get people to listen to the show and keeps us going. So I understand people are actually getting in the water recently. Uh, whatever we talked about last week got edited out because we had that dead spot there in the middle. So last week's episode went pretty quick. Um, but we have people have been getting in the water. I saw that uh, we had uh, some work going on around uh, the Rockaway. They've had uh, Rockaway and the Havana. They've uh, got crid down on the Havana. They've still got to put the uh, weights in it so it can start Yeah. Uh, to have the buoys attached so then we can have a marine to it. And the same mm-hmm. thing for the uh, Rockaway. I think that's scheduled for this weather permitting this weekend. Yeah. Well, I they tried locating the Rockaway this last weekend, but they uh, the numbers they had weren't showing anything up in the bottom. Well, and the and the lake kicked up. Oh, okay. But even when you're following the current or following the wave action, they should have been able to find something, and yeah, it was really not. So they're wondering how much got covered over in sand. That would have to be a lot of sand because we've got a center trunk up on that. Last time I dove on it, that was that was a good five feet above the bottom. So if we've got seven, five feet of sand that is built up, that would be pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And so then hopefully that would be, they'll find out. Yeah. Now, I'm hoping that just they missed it or they go in the long direction. You know, if you, if you went perpendicular to the wreck and didn't pick that up, but um, that's usually a nice wreck to go diving on too, the Rockaway. Yeah. So the preserve's making some progress, and we'll let you know when when things get up on it. And all the buoys oh. change and all the rigging has been purchased mm-hmm. together and is ready for use now. So yeah. the big thing now is getting the crids down correctly and weighted down before they put yeah. the buoys and the uh, lines on. Yeah, working on getting that uh, scrap metal. Um, yeah. We've had a lot of people have indicated they'd be willing to help out, but we haven't quite seen the the metal to go in there yet. And and so you mentioned that they'll be they're talking about going out the rockaway again this weekend? Yes, weather permitting. Yeah. And I did get a message from uh John 
on Saturday, wanting to know if I wanted to go dive out in Michigan City on Sunday. So I know that he probably did get out. I couldn't make it because of my son's graduation party. Yeah, I had options too. Uh, Yeah, that'll be the Muskegon. And then they were mm-hmm. going to do the uh, uh, the breakwater, which is a di- oh, which is a nice dive in itself. I've drove out there yeah. when we've had every bit of fifty, sixty years. Yeah, that's that's a remarkably nice place to dive. It's there's usually enough that's impacted the break wall. They have things to see. You have uh, sailboats and jet skis and. And parts uh, and pieces. <laughs> and parts and pieces, yeah. A lot, a lot of stuff hits and doesn't uh, leave in the same shape it arrived. Yeah. Uh, and the fish, man, they like to follow you around. And sometimes you think, I didn't didn't realize we had fish that big around here. And it was interesting how they were in layers. There's a different fish in that top 15 feet, then the next 15, and then the next down to the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that's a fun I, I like diving that. That's that's a, you know, I hit at least once each year, and it's been a couple of years since I've been back out there. Uh, they, you haven't heard about what kind of visit yet. No, I have not. Yeah. And I know they dove uh, Lake Cora again in the middle of the week, but I've not seen a report on them either. Yeah. So Thirsty Thursday dives, I think, are, are going on now. They're trying to. Well, since we normally go to the river, uh, they have been few and far between, so a lot of people are piggybacking on the SAS Wednesday days, hump day yeah. dives. Yeah, the uh, river right now is not in good condition again. We had more more rain, more downpours, and it seems to be when it comes down, it comes down. Yeah, when we finally get out there at the end of the summer, which I hope is true, I think we're going to find that bottom has totally over. It's going to look different. We're going to have new channels cut and all everything. New snag hazards. I'm looking forward to it. Well, do you have a uh, dive safety story? Well, actually, I have one that's called Catastrophic Regulator Failure. This is current. During a dive in the Solomon Islands, the diver's regulator failed, shutting off for gas supply. Although gear failures are usually associated with improper maintenance or use, manufacturing defects are possible. The diver was a 36-year-old woman of unknown experience or certification. She was on an eight-day dive trip to the Solomon Islands and was diving with a regulator she had purchased eight months earlier. The incident. The diver entered the water for the first dive of the day about 7.45 a.m. with 2,900 psi of air in her tank. She descended along a wall to 91 feet in search of sharks. Soon afterwards, she ascended to a shallower depth around 60 feet, taking photographs along the way. She was diving alone, but there were 16 other divers spread out along the wall. She came upon another photographer, but kept her distance to stay out of a shot. She encountered a fan coral before photographing it. She did what she usually did, looked at her computer to check her depth and a gas supply. At that time, she was 53 feet and had 1,100 PSI remaining in her tank. The diver recalled taking several photographs of the fan, then making a big exhalation, but tried to take another breath. There was no air. She immediately grabbed her octopus regulator, expecting to get some air from it, and again got nothing. 
Searching for someone close enough to help, she spotted the diver she had just passed and motioned to get his attention. But he was not looking towards her. The diver assessed that he was too far away for her to risk swimming towards him. Already experiencing an involuntary pulsing or purging, you know, the urge to breathe, the diver decided to make an emergency ascent. She recalled at one point seeing her computer display 000 as the time slash air remaining. On the way to the surface, the diver again tried to breathe with her from her regulator, but was unsuccessful. When she finally surfaced, the dinghy was close by. She quickly got into it. She explained her situation and asked to be put on oxygen. At that point, she looked at her dive computer, which read 900 pounds. Confused, she tried breathing from both second-stage regulators and could not get air from either one. The diver showed her computer to the boat operator and said, There is air in the tank. Upon arriving at the resort, the manager put the diver on oxygen for about 20 minutes and checked the regulator's function by attaching it to another tank. He was able to get one breath, full tank, but got nowhere from any of the partially full tanks to which they were attached. The manager then took the diver's original tank, examined it thoroughly, found nothing wrong with it or unusual. The manager tested the diver's regulator again on a partially full tank after the next dive by asking the diver to end his dive with 900 PSI. The regulator, when attached, continued to fail, would not provide gas. After sitting out diving for 30 hours, the diver used her original tank with a new first stage. She had no additional problems. Weighing the evidence, the diver contacted Dan and said, I believe this was a catastrophic failure of my regulator for stage, and it failed closed. Lessons learned. Scuba regulators work in a downstream configuration. Air flows from the place of high pressure of the tank to one of the intermediate pressure, the low pressure hose, and then to a place of low pressure, the diver. Because of this, they are often thought of as fail-safe, i.e., most failures will cause a free flow of air rather than cutting off the air supply. Indeed, it's very rare for a first stage to fail in the way the diver described. This particular first stage had an automatic closure device designed to prevent incursion aboard into the first stage when it's removed from the tank. After reporting this incident, the diver contacted Dan a few months later to let us know that Manufacturer had posted a consumer safety notice on its website that recommended a voluntary product check because a component of that system may not have been tightened to the correct torque. According to the manufacturer, this might cause a possible gas flow failure during a dive. Any divers who own a regulator that has an automatic closure device should check the manufacturer's website for product safety notices. It's important to note that solo diving or diving without a companion close by has gained popularity in recent years with increased availability of self-reliant diver certification. A core element of many of these courses is the use of a redundant air supply in case of a failure such as the one we talked about occurs. Unfortunately, this diver was not carrying a redundant air supply and needed to make an emergency ascent. Luckily, it was her first dive of the day. She had moved to shallower water during the dive, 
so she probably had not taken on as much inert gas as she otherwise might have. Both requesting oxygen and remaining out of the water were prudent measures. Fortunately, the diver suffered no ill effects and was soon able to return to diving. The key item there, and I looked it up, was Aqualung Regulator's ACD, the Legend ACD first stage with yoke-style connectors, what I was looking at. It said the Legend series of regulators are now equipped with our unique auto-closure device. And if you go to the site there, you can take a look at it. But the ones, the only ones I could find were the Aqualung Micron, the Legend, the Core, and the Titan. So the key item is, if you've got one with that device, the auto closure device, ACD, you might want to check yours and check to see if the manufacturer has a recall. Ah, that's that's interesting because that's exactly what my regulator is. Well, it so happens I happen to have a legend. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, so do do I. And, And that was the one, if you remember, back in the ancient days where it had the uh, grubs had uh, uh, gotten inside the tank and yeah. pushed it into that first stage. But it has that, I know what they're talking about, but I'm trying to figure out how that could fail close. So there must be something in the mechanism. If, if you go to the picture, uh, I could send you that. It's Aquamaster Net, and it's a PFD Aquamaster catalog. It'll show the breakdown of what it looks like. And as mm-hmm. you attach it to your valve, it depresses it. Yes. That allows the air to go through. And if it doesn't depress or if it comes up, you ain't got no air. But you would have no air right from the beginning from how no, I've. Not do well, yes. You would think so. But it seems to have been affected once it starts losing full air pressure. Remember, hmm. on full tanks, it worked. On yeah. tanks with less than full pressure, it did not. But I looked that up also on a scuba board, and items like this go back to 2007, talking about the same issue. Uh-huh. Yet this one was a Dan report this year. So it sounds like it's been a it's – it's about having the gear properly serviced and installed correctly. In this case, it may not have been – it may have come from the factory, not quite 100%. But they'd used it on previous dives. It's what it sounds like. Yeah. And one part, it said that she bought it several months prior, and it did not indicate whether or not she had used it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So it's possible, like you said, it was first dive for. Yeah. It's good to know. Yeah. Well, let's see. Do we have anything else? Seems like we're we're missing something, but here we are, just a few days away from uh, July. I, yeah, tell me about it. It just the season's slipping away. If you yeah. haven't got in, it's now's the time. Now it's past time. Yeah, unlike me, who I still have uh, drywall and paint <laughs> to install, it will wait. Yeah, well, I just went down. This, I spent the day reorganizing my dive gear, so I've got one whole tub of ready to go dry suit. Ready to go, Farmer John suit, the heavy duty one. Mm-hmm. Ready to go, regular suit. You know the the one piece that actually fits and it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> then I checked out all my regulators. I didn't realize how many I had had. 
how many lights I've got. Yeah. And I got a tub that I'm taking to the dive shop and say, use this junk, use it. If not, cut it in pieces and use it for patches. But I'm glad I went through all of it. I got, you know, mm. I sorted out all my lift bags, my photography stuff. Yeah. How many extra hoses I have. Uh, that That's something I still got to do. I got to replace some hoses. Some hoses and then my inflator on dry suit. I want to change that up. It works, but it's such a fight getting that back together. Well, I was going to use my three-piece, my you know, the Farmer John outfit. But the reason I went to the one-piece back zip was with that new material, it was more flexible and easier to get on and off. Oh, yeah. And I haven't dove that Farmer John in, I bet, three years. Yeah, yeah, but I went down and tried on a really nice new suit oh, last week. Yeah. That I am really thinking about getting because it's really nice to put on and fits me like a glove. Yeah, the, the, these uh, and that's for anybody who's buying gears. This the gear does get better in these uh, wetsuits. They're this, uh, especially this Ultra Flex or. And what they're doing is they're blowing a lot of air bubbles into that neoprene as they form it. It just makes it. You got really good insulation when it's new, and it's really soft and flexible to put on. So it's much easier than the older stuff. Yeah, the only problem I have with the suit anyway is, you know, where you have your knee pads, Uh especially at the top, because where you put it on and off, you get that space, and it separates from that heavy reinforcement to the neoprene. So it no longer is uh, stopping the water. Yeah. So you'll have water flow there, and wherever you had the patches on your elbow, the same mm-hmm. thing occurs. Yeah. So yeah. in warm water, she's great for the river in the summer, but you're not going to get in there when it starts getting 55 degrees. No, no. Well, do you have anything you want to plug before we get on? Not today. I'm in pretty good shape. I'm hoping to get out this weekend. Okay. Yep. Well, I, I, I'd say I hope this weekend, but I, I'm not thinking very likely, but I need to, I'm going to take some time off just to be able to go and do it. So. Yeah, I talked to uh, John, not talk, I left him a note. I was going through my scans again, looking for stuff. And I have got a few that are like, what? I haven't dove that? I've got some targets we have got to check out. Because nope. when they come off the floor by 10, 15 feet, uh, I want to find out what what that was that came off the floor 15. Yeah. Yeah, we got to go back and, and hit any of those. And John's got that nice 3D scanner or whatever he's got. So yeah. I said, I'm going to bring those along, give you the coordinates. Let's go see what it is. Yeah. Do you think we got time for a quick detour here? Uh, Derek in the chat room had wanted to know the story about Max Rec how that came to be. And I kind of relayed what I remembered, but I, I thought maybe it would be best to it's, hear from It's you. pretty much that I had been going through my old logbooks back when I used to keep logbooks. And it's really embarrassing because I looked at some of those from the 70s and it's like, who are these people I'm diving with? Because I don't remember them. And of course, you know, I had a, a stroke 20 years ago and I lost... One, I can't remember names with a flying flip. I mean, I know who you are. I know how many kids, know where you work, but I can't remember your name. It's crazy. 
So I'm reading these names, and it's like, I don't know who these people are anymore. And they're not diving, obviously. They're not local. But I went through, and I was looking at coordinates, and it's like, found big piece of wood, but didn't find anything else. It's like, let's go back out and look. So, and I'm trying to remember who I was out with. I don't know, were you on there with us? I know it was Jim Schultz. It was Jim and uh, Larry. Okay. So Larry we went Cam. down, yeah. and it's like we went down, did a line, and it's like snag. I go back, and damn, that's a freaking anchor. All right, and then we're looking around, and then we did more surveys, and what I originally found was the stern. But remember, because it's a sand wreck where the dead eyes and stuff, I am willing to bet back then that was covered up. And again, back then we had, if you had four-foot visibility, you were doing freaking good. So we had no clue that was really a wreck, and I'm just glad we went back. And let's take a look at that big bump on the bottom. So that's yeah, Max that, wreck. Yep. And that that's pretty much how I, I remembered the story, but I uh, couldn't quite remember. Uh, but it's it been still, a while. it aggravates me. I mean, that that damn barge I dove on out there, we've been looking for that again for 20 years and can't relocate it, you know? And yeah, why can't we find it? It's, it's a it's got, barge. Well, a barge, I can believe, would get buried up. But it's It's got to be out there. There's people fishing on it, and you know it. Well, that's how I, that's, a guy took me out in the middle of the freaking night. This is way before GPS. So I, and I didn't, went overboard down at the bottom in 60 something foot. I'm walking around in the dark, thump. Damn, I just walked into a wall. It was a freaking barge. Yeah. So when I came up, I could see the plant, nuclear plant. So I got my reference from that. But, uh, you know, at night in the water, bobbing around, I know the depth. I knew the proximity to Cook. We cannot locate that again. And if you go straight out from that same area, there's another one in 120 feet. We can't relocate that one. It's crazy when you've dove them and you can't find them again. Yeah. Uh, that barge, it's on the way to the Ann Arbor 5. Do you know if we've got any video? Of uh, actually, who was that talking about that? Uh, somebody did a video because they did a penetration. I think that's okay. the one that, where they did the penetration. Sounds and like that been Kevin or something. It wasn't Kevin, but it was it was one of the guys from the uh, West Michigan Underwater Preserve, as I okay. recollect. And actually, somebody did a penetration on the uh, Ann Arbor Five. Ann Arbor Five, which they do not recommend ever no. doing again. No, and that was from the person who survived it. Yeah, that was a bad. Yeah, yeah that 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 was an admitted. Oops, I should never have tried that. Not an oops. That's like that was really stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, you know, the bar. Your, was, I was going to say sticking your head inside looking with a light is different than your whole body. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that barge and crane. If we had video of that one, uh, my dad thinks he may be able to identify it because he's. Uh, was familiar, you know, being from Sagatuck Holland about the time that would have gone, or from before. He, yeah, because they're they're saying that was a, was a barge that was used at the nuclear plant. They think because uh, was a couple barges that my grandfather actually made. That my dad thinks that could be one of them. 
Actually, I think Kevin did go through that and did a frustration because the not last dive meeting, the one before last, he was talking about that's really a nice dive if you do that. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is I don't know. I mean, just my da- my dad thinks it might be. So if we had video, it would be easy for somebody who's not diving it to, to say, oh, yeah, that's this or that. Because he was trying to describe structures and pieces of it. He goes, yeah, you what you're thinking is this is probably really that. And, you know, I'm just not familiar enough with those on the surface right. to know what they look like underwater. Yep. Plus, that's at a depth. If you're on, we're on air. And that's at 125, and probably now with the water levels higher, it's at 130 or plus. And uh, that's one of those where, depending on how many deep dives I've done when I've been on it, I, you can tell. I, I can when usually when I dive on that barge, I'll go to the sand, and about halfway around, I can really feel the narcosis trying to kick in. But if I if I go up about 10, 15 feet to where I'm at the top. Where, it, where it's kind of sitting on its side, mm-hmm. everything kind of clears up. You're not using uh, nitrox? No. No, not on that. I use it on any dive out there. Yeah. I like that geezer gas. Yeah. No, I, I, um, not on that. I, have, I haven't been. That may have been. Yeah. yeah. You got you to really plan for that one. But Okay, well, we're to that time of the show. So are you ready? Yep, I'm sitting down. Okay, we'll do this. I think I think I've got 3 of them here and they'll they'll all go pretty quick. And you'll be kind of evident why we need 3. The first <laughs> one the first one is you know, and, and this is something that I just personally do. I I like to call uh toilets the gym instead of the john. So that way I can tell people I visit the gym several times a day. I've heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> And then we had uh, three scuba divers uh, walk into a bar, and they all say, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, then here, here's the final one for this week. Uh, somebody stole my dive light, and I couldn't be more delighted. So uh, if, if you've got some better ones, uh, we'd appreciate it. You could send them our way, the show at scubaobsessed.com, or uh, click on the contact us page and send them that way. Or better yet, uh, come into the uh, the chat room when we're recording and you can give them to us there. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.